So last year, I spoke about how uh, the uh, previously important church. Last year, I spoke about how the first few words in the Bible um, were really critical for understanding the Christian message. Interestingly, Peter read from John 1 earlier on this morning. Um, they introduced the God as being a supreme, as the underpinning truth behind all the truths of holiness and sin. Um, and it's in the context of that character of God, the context of sin makes sense. And then the cross makes sense. Without this underlying concept of God, those all things fall to bits. And we miss that significance and then wonder why we struggle trying to communicate the gospel. Anyway, that was last year, so go back and look in the archives if you're, uh, you missed it. So this year, I want us to go in a different direction. And I want us to go in this, this direction is essentially where most of us in the world are, or most of our people that we, we meet are, that's the direction they're in. in. And we need to understand, uh, their worldview, their, where they're coming from, in order to try and communicate the gospel in that context. So, there is a, um, a much easier way of getting rid of this sin problem. It's easy. All you have to do is just, just say, there's not God. There's just a big accident. It's a big cosmic accident. There's no ought. There's nothing right or wrong. There's just stuff in the universe. How it got there, we'll worry about that later. We just haven't sorted it out yet. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad in this world. If we want something good or bad, we just decide it's good or bad, either as individuals or as a group. And we might change your mind next week. So what's wrong with this view? Why doesn't this view work? Well, we need to understand why this does, this does work. It works when, as individuals or collectively, we buy into a collective set of values that's shared by our community, and we're strong enough, we're strong enough to assert them on that community or on another community. Um, and this could be participating in, as a family or as a democratic process, or even, to some extent, in some sort of conflict, some sort of lifestyle choice, maybe. And we just construct our own set of values around things that we, we find useful to us. Partner, children, friends, wider family, job, money, home, other possessions, our profile on social media, or whatever else we want to you know, come up with. And sin is replaced by just a violation of those values. It's just replaced by something of when things go wrong. Well, what does, those, what does, happen, what does it look like when these things go wrong? Well, sometimes... Someone else's choices are opposite to what we want. And we may feel that we've been wrong. We may feel that, ah, oh, I've been, I've been, um, uh, wronged. I've been, someone's done something against me. But they've just got different cultures and they can just choose to do that. And the more powerful we are, we, more powerful we can assert ourselves on other people and more powerfully we can protect ourselves when things go wrong. We can get justice. We can, um, you know, have a really expensive legal teams and we can, you know, fight these things. It could be, it could be money. A lot of money buys you an awful lot of these things. It could be military. It could be the fact we can have a war and we can just go, we're stronger than you and defeat it. It could be political. We have the right political connections. And that's just, we assert ourselves. And that's what we define right as. It's because we're the right political party and we just, um, and we can assert ourselves. And for all of those reasons, we could be on the wrong side of that. Just, just the way it is. And there could be issues where those things don't work, when we're on the wrong side of that. So, for example, um, it could be the crimes committed in another country, and, and we're actually there's no way we can get justice because actually it's committed somewhere else and we don't have that jurisdiction there. Or, not so much in this country, but other countries, there's a time limit on prosecutions. You try and get justice and you suddenly find the time to run out. It's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just difficult. Now, what, what makes this particular worldview attractive is that over the last few hundred years, this country 
and this society have been on the winning side. Our country and our society has been powerful enough to assert its values in other parts of the world. And we've kind of assumed those values are universal, and we get slightly surprised when different people in a different world have to do different things to us. And we're getting, we're changing a little bit in the sense that we're, you know, they're, over, they're overseas or a different country. They've got different sets of values to us. And we sort of let them get on with it now. But we, what we don't tend to do is allow those cultures to really change us. We have British values, whatever those are. And we don't, we're strong enough to allow um, our, self, our own values to just push against those ones. And we can have a little bubble here. So if you're a winner in our society, if you've got enough money... If your life's long enough and you're healthy enough, why would you bother with God? If you believe in life, that no, there's no mess that's big enough that you can't fix it, then the cross isn't necessary. I mean, even if, for example, your life isn't, is going to be cut short, thought, cut short through illness, I mean, what do they reckon now, that one out of two of us, half of us at some point in our life are going to get cancer? Not necessarily die from it, but get cancer. And, you know, even if you do, you discover that you've got some d- disease that means you're going to die early, what do you do? What you do is you create a bucket list. And then you go off and do your bucket list, and then you post photos of yourself on social media showing how brilliant it was for the end of your life, and demonstrate, you know, that your life's been brilliant. And you post it on Instagram or something. If you don't know what Instagram is, ask this lot. Um, but what happens if we're not a winner in our society? What happens if we've worked on all the right stuff and we've come out with the wrong answer? Well, this is where we're going to go to the Bible, and we're going to have a look at what it says about things. Now, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. This book um, is probably influenced by uh, Solomon. Um, it's one of a three wisdom books in the Bible that ponders what good life looks like. Uh, and apparently, it should only take you half an hour to read it, apparently, the whole thing. Um, however, it's written in a really weird style that takes a lot of getting used to. Um, and if you've struggled with it in the past or not read it before, um, when I send out the house group notes, there'll be links to some videos that will help you try and understand it a bit better. So watch them and then read the book. Um, and there was a concept that runs the right the way through uh, Ecclesiastes, and it's a really, really hard concept to try and understand. And the concept is called, uh, the Hebrew word is hevel, or hevel. And what it literally means is smoke. And different translations, it's really hard to translate, so typically they'll say something like meaningless, vanity, smoke, useless, nonsense, pointless, and futility. Um, and the literal translation is smoke, but it's, it's a metaphor. And there's three aspects to the way this metaphor works. The first one is you can see it. So if I had a, a smoky candle, you could see the smoke. I didn't bother with the candle because it might set the fire alarm off. Um, you could have a smoky candle. You've all seen it, but you can't grasp it with your hand. It's there in front of you, but you physically can't grasp it. And the other thing is, is that it shape shifts and changes. It doesn't stay constant. I mean, nowadays you can run whizzy algorithms and model how it's going to be, but basically if you're a normal human being looking at it, you don't know what it's going to shift and change into. And the third thing is, is not only in addition to those two, and this is where you guys are familiar with, when we've been playing with Night in the Museum with all the smoke out the back, not only can you not see, you can see the smoke around you and it's just, it's all there and you can't grasp it. You can't see anything else in the room. It's kind of the point of playing the game, isn't it? But you can't see anything else. And that's the the point about this, this smoke. Um, is that it gets in the way of all the other stuff in life. Not only are things in life just seemingly just smoke, but they block in, in, um, I'll stop your understanding of other things in the book, in, the, this, in, in, in life. Now, the protagonist um, 
in this book, usually described as the teacher or the preacher. He describes how he's tried living lives uh, in different ways, of, and different examples, the ones, some of the examples I quoted earlier, a number of things, and he, he finds he lets them down, and they're all just uh, smoke. So he's tried um, living with pleasures, not necessarily masters of wealth, but just sort of enjoying life. So who's got Ecclesiastes 2? Is that you? 10 and 11, is that you, Leah? Go on then. I, de- I denied myself nothing but my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I had surveyed all my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Thanks. He tried gaining wisdom. This could be learning new things. This could, it could be exploring deep truths about life, or even constructing our own worldviews. Uh, who's got what? Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 17, is that you? Thanks. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God had laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. And then he tries pulling himself to his work, Ecclesiastes 2. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toils and labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another one, who, to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Thanks, Will. So he takes all these things and just finds them empty and and just um, just ethereal, just smoke, just just nothing. Interesting, unlike maybe in our society, he, he comes to a different conclusion. Uh, off the back of these things, he points us back to God and has that as a reference point that he uses. He's got Ecclesiastes 12. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in orders many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. One of making many books, there is no end, and much study wears, wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is a conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this duty is of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. 
So he comes to that different conclusion, but many of us in the world today aren't in, don't, don't make that same journey. So how do we how do we square that circle? How do we um, square this experience in Ecclesiastes with our world today? Well, I'm going to go take us back to this idea of, of smoke and then the fact that we can get lost in it. So we're going to look at some of some words that Jesus spoke about. And when you're lost in a particular environment and need direction, what you need is a map. When they first were making maps, certainly in this country, what they used to do is they'd measure things about the environment using triangles. And from that, you could build this map of the, of the, of the landscape and build, um, and you could then work it where you are based upon this map. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some um, verses of what Jesus uh, has put together, and they're going to be a set of four uh, triangles that we're going to use to sort of try and navigate our way from... Um, where we've been in the Old Testament, to, to what Jesus is trying to say and how that works. So um, can we look at... Uh, who's got Matthew? So you, Leah. Yeah, go on then. Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are you when you... When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Okay, he's got Luke 6, 20 to 22, is that you? Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil. Because of the Son of Man. He's got, uh, yeah, Luke 6, 24, 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Right. So these two uh, talks that Jesus gave, it's not the same talk. One is recorded as being up on the, is the Sermon on the Mount that you're most familiar with, and the other one is on a plane. And it's important to remember, of course, that back in those days, in fact, from 100-and-something years ago, you couldn't like record a talk like we're recording now and then have it available for other people to play back. You actually had to go and perform it multiple times. So it meant that Jesus would have to go around traveling parts of... Uh, Galilee or wherever, chop cuts of uh, Judea, and give the same talk similar times. And if you've, uh, again, when some musicians do this, they'll sort of riff off it slightly differently and express a tune or a piece of music, or in this case, a talk, in a slightly different way. So Jesus is taking some of those ideas and just spinning them slightly differently. And I think that's really interesting because it helps us um, triangulate some the sort of meaning he's trying to do between all the different bits. So we're going to look at so we're going to look at four little triangles. And the first one we're going to look at is about um, poverty and richness. So again, one of the things that we saw in Ecclesiastes was, was how the protagonist there, or the, uh, the, not the writer, but the, the character in there, tried to go for riches to try and get um, value and meaning and, and, and things in life. Um, and Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Interesting. Um, but it, it's in other parts of Ecclesiastes as well. He says, well, actually, that's not necessarily great either because actually then you don't have very much. Um, and it's, it's quite tricky because you're living, you know, you're poor. But Jesus said, woe to the rich. Why is that? That was, this was a good place to be, wasn't it, in terms of getting all the stuff and having all the stuff? Well, actually, as the, the, the writer in Ecclesiastes discovered, that doesn't, being rich doesn't help you either. What Jesus is really on about is, is this poor in spirit thing up here. 
Because in our world that we live in, we try and navigate this. We're trying to go from you know, being poor to rich. This is the, the line that we try and navigate ourselves on. But actually, Jesus is trying to go for something else about this, this poor in spirit thing. It's not about physically how much stuff you have. It's about recognizing that the stuff that you may or may not have won't satisfy you. That actually that there's a, something inside you that um, you have to realize that is missing in your life. is poverty of spirit. That actually is the key key thing. And unless, unless you've got to that point, and we'll see a bit later on with some of the characters we look at, unless you've got to that point, you're kind of not ready. Jesus just says, you know, the kingdom is coming to people who have got these kind of characteristics. Paul doesn't quite cut it because you might not necessarily recognize it. Um, but it's, it's this concept of poor in spirit seems to draw this out, that you need to be ready to receive what the kingdom is kind of talking about. Um, Next one is to do with hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Again, the, you know, the, the left-hand side here, my, uh, for the benefit of the people listening, some slides will be um, sent out with the, the house group notes. Um, there are, the, the, we, we focus on the left-hand side typically. You know, do we want to be, maybe hungry, want to be full? It's like, actually, that's not quite the right thing either. It's to do this hungering thirst for righteousness. What, and righteousness is one of those big, fancy Christian words we use. So what does it really mean? Well, I think, my, this is my take on it, and again, you can feel free to differ and argue about it in your house group, so argue with me. It's almost more than justice. Justice is about getting something's gone wrong, and we need to sort of have some sort of consequences for that. And that's sort of justice. And I'm just thinking about the events of this week on the news, pretty much every week on the news, something's gone horribly wrong. And justice is about having whatever the justice mechanism to try and remedy that. But all too frequently, the things we read about on the news is just some utter disaster that's happened in someone's life. And the justice that happens as a consequence that won't bring back those people, won't restore that situation. But I think righteousness is something else. Righteousness also is if a deep-hearted desire and an aspiration and a want that says, I want everything to be restored and put back together again. Now, interestingly, this side of eternity, that can't happen. But it's this, this desire that says, it, sh- it, it should be better, it could be better, I want it to be better. And that's really key. It's wanting to have that, um, that hunger and thirst again within your spirit and in your, in your, uh, inside of you. That, as interesting, I'm reminded, Paul talks about himself in his letters, um, how he had different experiences. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be full. He knows what it's like to have good, have and have not. Actually, that wasn't important. It was this, this sort of spiritual thirst and hunger engaging with God that was, for him, it was a key part of his relationship with God. But for the audience, what Jesus is talking about, that is a starting point to allow them to be ready to accept what the kingdom of God is all about. Trying number three. This one's a bit different because it's the negative aspects in both weep, uh, sorry, in Luke and Matthew are quite similar. Um, and it seems a bit of an odd one. Why is it, would you, if you're um, weeping and mourning, why would that be better? Well, who's God? Where is it? It's Ecclesiastes 7. You, Elizabeth. Who's got Ecclesiastes 7? Have a look. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 to 4. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. So it's interesting, the, the clarification, this is an example of where scripture inter- interprets scripture. Um, this, 
to try, to try and get clarification of what Jesus is talking about, it's interesting there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that seems to help here. What he's trying to get at is saying that when you're at a funeral, this is, it's not just being sad, it's actually something about specifically about um, funerals and about re- remembering that life is short and, well, it's finite. He's, he's saying that at that point, there's an opportunity, if you let it, to focus and think about the bigger questions in life, to think about, what are we really here for? What, what, you know, what was life all about? Is it really worth it when that life is finished? And you get that in those difficult opportunities. It's those difficult opportunities that allow your opportunity you know, to, to, for you to grow and think about yourself and actually have a bit of a quality in your, in your growth in life. So you don't necessarily get that in a party. If you're just laughing and having um, passing away, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the message that he's trying to sort of communicate. Um, so those difficult times are better in the long run rather than just having a, 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 enjoying ourselves because it's just good in the short term. And lastly, um, this one's a little bit different. This is the one where he talks about, Jesus talks about, um, bless those people who hate you, revile you, persecute you, when you serve me, when you do things in my name. Um, and woe to those people who everyone speaks well of you. Now, First, it's different, it's different because it's actually very much speaking to those people who are about to, to, to following Jesus, um, or about to, certainly about to follow Jesus. But the, the bottom of the triangle where it speaks well of you, the reason I wanted to include it is because I think it speaks, it speaks something quite interesting into our world today with, the, with social media. There's a real temptation to have a, a social media presence, particularly which is even bigger than maybe all our friends and family, where we want everyone to have lots of likes on social media and want everyone to say great things about us. Yeah, that's really good. And Jesus says something quite interesting. He says, as if, if you're on my side, if you're on the Lord's side, for those who remember that, that old hymn, there will be people who will get upset by what you're doing. And that is okay. That if you're, everyone says in this world says, yeah, well, that's really good and everyone likes you, you're probably not on the same page as God. And going back to sort of what we did sort of last time, I spoke last time, that's probably not a good place to be. Given who God is, you probably want to be one on his side, even if it's going to cost you. And certainly in the New Testament, with the, in, that Paul talks about, and rather, you know, the other parts of the New Testament talk about, um, certainly, you know, the difficult times come when people are serving God. So all of that's, that's great. So what does it mean for us today? I think what this is, this is key, is that the, the people who are in the place where they can accept God have to find the things in this world lacking in some sense. Most of the people we live with are in our lives, many of them have lived those lives and seem, they're not necessarily mega rich or have massive amazing jobs, but they seem basically essentially satisfied with life and it's hard to know how to reach out to them. Um, and my understanding of where these passages is that where, where Jesus also follows. He follows, tries to sort of reach out to people who have tasted those things in life and found them wanting. If, for the, there are those people who are seem seemingly everything's okay with life. And Jesus seems to sort of be, okay, keep them in mind and we'll come back to them. But he seems to focus his effort amongst those who have tasted life or have, have been in live life and have their life sort of fall apart and not have it work. Jesus seems to follow all the, on the losers in life rather than the winners. He chooses to be with those who knew there were life rejects. And it seems to be that in that soil was the best opportunity for people to recognize who he was. When you've got 
little in life, it's easier to give that up than when you've got quite a lot. Remember the, uh, the rich young ruler, you can read about it in Luke 18. He's, because he's quite wealthy, it's really hard for him. And Jesus said it's hard for the rich to the, enter the kingdom of heaven. Also think about um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the prodigal sons. Here we go. It's the, the, it's when we're very familiar with the story. The younger son goes away, after into a far country. I seem to have a great time. And then he comes back. But no, the father doesn't go off to the far country to go and find his son. He waits for him to come back. He waits for him to realize that his life is a mess. And I think some of us will get really stressed in life and get worried about in life. Be people who are far away and are lost like that. And we think, oh, crumbs, what, how do we connect with them? And it's as if, you know, the, the, the father in that story is, you know, is, is praying God, is waiting for them to come back. It's as if they've got to come to that journey by themselves to, to realize that they are, uh, they're broken. Remember whom the people that Jesus came to, to meet with? He mixed, he's, he's accused of mixing with those people who aren't worth it. In Matthew 9 and Mark 10, um, Jesus says it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Now, we also know the Pharisees needed Jesus um, too, but they didn't recognize it, a bit like the older prodigal son. Now, think about this. When we're sick, we go and see the doctor and make us, you know, and, uh, and go to the doctor or hospital or something. But if we're not, we don't think we're sick, then we don't. There's a, there is actually a related spiritual issue here about the whole uh, issue about which the Pharisees had, about when we don't realize we're sick. Many of us, particularly when you get to a certain age, have to go through these screening programs where they screen you for all sorts of interesting diseases because there's no way you could know those things are wrong with you. Um, and if we always knew that whether there's something wrong with us, we wouldn't need those screening programs because we would just go to the doctor or the hospital and go, I'm sick. But we don't always know. And that's why we have to have those screening programs. There's a the gospel challenge, a bit like for those Pharisees and Sadducees, is a bit like that sort of early screening program. We, there's this challenge of there really is something wrong with you, but you just don't want to believe it. And Jesus wanting to connect with those people, particularly who know there's something wrong with them. Like the sick people who go and see a doctor, he's wanting to connect to those people who know there's something wrong with them spiritually. Rather than necessarily picking fights with people who think they're doing all right, he does have, you know confrontations with Pharisees and Sadducees. But generally they came to him. And there wasn't necessarily much fruit about it. There were some exceptions. But even going back to those people who think they're sick, they, they know they're sick and they came to Jesus. Jesus puts himself in a position where they can come to him. They can come and ask for healing. They can come to um, uh, asking for, you know, whatever the thing that they're, that they're struggling with. And he, he can minister to them because they know they have that need. Interestingly, it's one of the things, it's, it's kind of easy to forget, but it's, it's embaked in the stories. When you've got sick people, whether it's the woman who, who's bleeding, whether it's someone who's lame, whether it's all sorts of things wrong with them, they clearly have the belief that, firstly, it's not supposed to be like this, that actually they can be healed, that there is healing is available. Secondly, that actually Jesus can do that healing. Either because he gives a word or because he touches, he, they can reach like the woman who can, she can reach out and touch him, that he is able to, and that is a good thing that they're healed. They want that. It might sound obvious, but there are some of us sometimes in life who maybe have conditions who go, I'm not going to bother to go to the doctor about that. I'm not going to bother. I, I, it's not fixable or no one can fix that for me. But they're clearly, certainly spiritually, or in this case physically, and sometimes spiritually in both, not in that place. 
They're at the place that something's broken and it can be fixed and Jesus can fix it for me. And they could go and connect with that. There, as I said, there are some exceptions. Um, and there's two key um, people that I want to focus on. And they are Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea. They are members of the Jewish council. And without them, there would have been no empty tomb. Because, of course, it was Joseph's tomb that Jesus was allowed to borrow um, the, where he was put. These two men were clearly had status, and it was probably quite risky for them to, to, to say, can we have his body, please? It would been a bit awkward, might be a bit embarrassing. N- uh, Nicodemus, famously, in John 3, comes to Jesus at night, um, and has a conversation with Jesus, not asking him questions about who he is. Jesus is ready, we'll come back to that, about the conversation he's going to have with, with, with Nicodemus. But Nicodemus comes, and he asks questions, and he explores those things. But he has to do it at night time. It's, 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 it's a really important story, um, conversation, because in that conversation is the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. It's in that, com- that conversation where that verse comes in. So there are clearly sometimes people who come and will ask us questions, but they're the exceptions, important exceptions, because I said without these two, we wouldn't have an empty tomb. Jesus' body would have ended up somewhere else. So what is that? where does that leave us, all of us? Well, I think what that leaves us is that as a church and as individuals, we should be looking out for those people who, are, who know their life is a mess. Um, but we need to be ready and open for those like Nicodemus, who come, you know, have those, come to us and have those conversations with us and clearly have seen something. But most of the time, we need to focus on those people for whom they know life's a mess. Um, and there are organizations where that's more obvious. I mean, you things like people who involved in Breakfast Club are in that category. Anyone who's involved with Southampton City Mission is a bit like, and there's others that I could mention. This could be really costly being involved in situations like that because... That is going to, it's going to cost us ourselves in doing that. Those who are observing us doing that will see that we're pouring out our lives into those situations, pouring our time and our resource and money in doing that. And if we pour ourselves into that, they will see that we're not doing it for selfish motives, for trying to get more promotion, you know, more, you know good, I don't know, to try and give a good image. And there's a tricky balance there between getting involved in it and being seen to be getting involved in it and not trying, not being seen to show off particularly the sort of social media and all that sort of thing. And it's tricky to know how to maintain his relationships sometimes. Clearly, Nicodemus and, and Joseph Arimathea had seen something Jesus was doing. Maybe it was a few healings. Maybe it was something, they'd seen something that went, I want to go and see more of that. But typically in our lives, the way we live them now, we, uh, we do stuff and other people don't see what we're doing unless we sort of promote it and that looks like really awkward on social media or something. It's also um, tricky to know how to maintain those relationships with those that seem satisfied. How can we live a life that's intriguing, that mean those people who seem to have it all made will ask us questions? So where does this leave us? I think it leaves us in a situation, both as individually and collectively, we need to um, pray about where the Lord's, Lord's leading us in terms of our time and effort and resource. And where is it that uh, God wants us to uh, put those efforts into working with those people who are most fruitful. Jesus went out of his way to go and meet different people and met with people who, you know, he, he met with them the life was as losers. And continuously, Jesus is accusing with mixing with the wrong crowd. 
are we going to be accused of mixing with the wrong crowd and meeting with those wrong people? What is that going to look like in terms of the cost to us as individuals and collectively? I don't have the answers to that. There's some questions I'll send out as, but with the house group notes. But I want to leave you with that as something to go away and think about what that might be and something to pray through um, as, as, as in, the coming, in the weeks to come. Let's just pray to end. Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us that. But it's a really hard challenge to know how to put that into practice. And I just pray that you would open up our hearts and our eyes and lead us to places where, the more difficult places, where maybe it's, it's a bit difficult, it's more difficult to serve you. It's tricky to know what, for many, is what that looks like and how we'd, you know, we'd make that work with the other things that we do in our lives. And I just pray that you give us wisdom and insight and open up opportunities and also make our lives suitably open and transparent that people would want to ask us questions about why we do what we do. We ask that you work in our hearts, work in our lives and show us these things as we walk with you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.